And if you have Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of Romans. Uh, the book of Romans is maybe about halfway or so through the New Testament. Uh, and if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Rachel mentioned just a moment ago, uh, page 942 uh, is where you will find today's text. It's, uh, I'm sure, obvious already by this point, but uh, in case you just showed up or, or have missed this throughout, today we are celebrating uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he is, as that scripture that we heard before, uh, leading into our time of confession and repentance, he is, as Colossians 1 says, the firstborn from the dead. Uh, he has become, in all things, preeminent. He reconciles all things to himself. He has made peace by the blood of his cross. And the church, the the Catholic, the universal church, has been gathering to rejoice in this good news every Easter Sunday now for nearly 2,000 years. And for those 2,000 years, if you were to, in any given Easter Sunday, any given locale, any given local gathering of Christians here or somewhere to the ends of the earth, if you were to look around the room and to glimpse the faces of the real flesh and blood people, for whom Christ died, for whom Christ conquered death, you would observe in their faces a mixture. You would see in some a countenance and a conviction which seemingly conveys that this man or woman has fully embraced this truth of the resurrection and is seeking to live in light of it. You would see others who, though celebrating, though maybe even echoing this famous call and response, he is risen, he is risen indeed, would be echoing those words of life with the look of death upon them. Comatose. As a devout Roman Catholic, the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien are uh, immensely influenced by spiritual themes, spiritual illustrations. And I wonder if observing something like that, maybe on an Easter Sunday, maybe on any other given Sunday or, or gathered time of worship, that that wasn't the inspiration for one of what I believe is one of the most powerful scenes in the second installation of his series, The Lord of the Rings, the one called The Two Towers. In the two towers, Theoden is the king of Rohan. But when we meet him in the story, he's come under this spell. Uh, He has this duplicitous advisor named Wormtongue, who is actually uh, under the employ, under the influence of Sauron, the, the main antagonist of the entire story. And the film version of this, if you've seen it, depicts this really well. When we first see Theoden, we know he's a king because he's wearing a crown. And we know he's a king because he's sitting in this great hall and he's sitting on a throne. But when you look at his face, he looks nothing like a king. He's shriveled. He's this pale shadow of the man that he was. And he reeks in that moment when we first meet him of death and decay. Gandalf enters this great hall. One of the main protagonists of the story is this wizard named Gandalf, in case you've never seen it or read it. And shoving worm tongue to the side, he proclaims, Theoden, too long have you sat in the shadows. And he attempts in that moment to free him from this comatose spell. Initially, though, he gets laughed off. He gets laughed off, and Theoden, actually the voice of Sauron speaking through Theoden, says to him, Gandalf, you have, Gandalf the Grey, you have no power here. But what we know is that he's not Gandalf the Grey anymore. He's Gandalf the White. He has stared down evil. He has stared down his own death, and now he's returned with a new kind of power. And so as he's being laughed at, he sheds his outer cloak to reveal this robe of bleached white. 
and he proceeds to cast this spell out of Theoden. And Theoden begins to wake up, and the color begins to return to his skin, and he begins to become again his true self. And as he does, Gandalf says these fantastic words, in my opinion. Breathe the free air again, my friend. Breathe the free air again, my friend. I wonder how many of us this morning are like Theoden when we first encounter him in that story. Reduced or feeling as though we've been reduced to pale shadows of the men and women that we are meant to be. Imprisoned under this tyrannical spell of a ruler who, as we celebrated today, the power of this ruler has been broken. But yet we reek of death, we reek of decay, and we find ourselves in desperate need for the resurrection power of Jesus to be for us not only an acknowledged truth, but an experiential reality. I'll put it to you this morning this way. Jesus is alive. Are you? Are you? And today, of course, is primarily a celebration of Jesus' resurrection. But because we, by faith, are united with him, it is also today a celebration of our own death and our own resurrection, of our own life that's found in Christ. We are now alive. We are invited. We are called to breathe the free air again. So this morning and for the rest of our Sundays together in April, we're going to look at what the resurrection means for our lives. What, it, what are the implications of our, for our lives in light of Jesus' resurrection? And in whatever specific way you might resonate with Theoden and feel like this pale shadow of the man or woman that you are meant to be, consider this for you a five-week-long invitation, a five-week-long plea to wake up from your slumber, to come alive in light of what Jesus has done. And we begin today by looking at the idea of new life itself. Because Jesus lives, as the Apostle Paul will say in today's text, we too may live a new life. We too may walk in newness of life. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love, Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God 
as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God of life, your spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Your spirit inspired the prophets and the writers of scripture. Your spirit draws us to Christ and helps us to acknowledge him as Lord. And so we ask now that your spirit would give us deeper insight and encouragement and faith and hope through the proclamation of this Easter gospel. And we pray this in the name of the risen one, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Pointing to the finished work of Jesus, pointing to its implications for our lives, Paul highlights two big things here in this text. New life as our position and new life as our practice. And so we'll spend the rest of our time talking about those two things this morning. First, new life as our position. When Paul begins chapter 6, he's just finished saying something scandalously amazing. And that is that we cannot out the grace of God. The, the law of God, all these rules and ordinances that were revealed by God through Moses centuries before this, that law exposes our sinfulness. It puts a spotlight on those ways that we live out of line with the design and order of God's created world. But not only that, the, the law of God also increases our sinfulness. By, by defining for us the design of God and what life in light of that should look like, it activates this rebellious part of us where now that we know what the rules are, we want to live outside of them. We want to rebel against God. But what Paul says is good news. Take heart because where sin has now increased because of the law, grace has abounded all the more. There were some then, as there are some today, who warp that beautiful truth in order to presume upon God, in order to live with this license to sin anytime in any way that they would like. And so Paul's beginning chapter 6 here by answering an argument. And the argument goes like this. If grace abounds, well, shouldn't we just keep on sinning? The more sin, the more grace, right? The more that there's actually sin in the world, the more grace there is to cover that sin. So let's just sin more. Paul's answer, though, is emphatically negative. He says, by no means. By no means. Why not? Because a fundamental change has occurred. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, Christians are those who have undergone a positional change. The scriptures use a number of different pictures, a number of different analogies and metaphors to explain and to display our salvation. One of the most important, one of maybe the least understood or maybe the most often neglected is that of union with Christ. That when we repent of our sin and in faith look to Jesus, look to his finished work, his life, death, and resurrection, we become united with him. I don't know what your specific background is or if you even have one at all with the church, if that's Roman Catholic, if that's Eastern Orthodox, if that's Protestant. Generally speaking, evangelical Christianity has traditionally emphasized only one half of this reality. And that is that we are those who, by faith, when we, when we trust in the work of Christ, we receive Christ. He comes to dwell in us. That's true. But it's not just that we receive Jesus. I would argue more importantly and certainly more remarkably It's that Jesus receives us. It's not just that Christ is in us, it's that we are in Christ. 
And the Holy Spirit applies this powerful, finished work of Jesus to our own lives. We are swept up into, we are identified with Jesus' own life, his own death, his own resurrection. And this is really what Paul is emphasizing throughout this text. That trusting in Jesus, we have become united with him. And what that means is that Christ's death is your death. That Christ's burial is your burial and that Christ's resurrection is your resurrection. And so if you have maybe been in that generality of evangelical Christianity that's only heard the one half of this, that Christ is in you, don't neglect, don't miss this beautiful scandal that by faith you are in Christ. That his death, his burial, his resurrection, those are yours by faith in him. Paul says here that all of those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus are baptized into these things. And baptism in this instance is a, just a shorthand way that Paul is summarizing the entirety of the conversion experience. So we repent and we believe, and scriptures tell us that through that we enter the kingdom of God. Then we're baptized as a sign, as a seal of that entrance into God's kingdom. And our union with Christ is happening through these things. So Paul here is not so much emphasizing or concerned with the specific mechanics of exactly when, exactly how all that takes place. He's emphasizing the reality. This is true. By your conversion, by your baptism, you are in Christ. But what I would say to you is that as we consider this radical transfer from death to life in our union with Christ, don't miss the significance of the sacraments. Don't miss the significance of the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are these unique, God-given means that allow us to experience our union with Christ in a way that nothing else does. So they are symbols, they are signs, they are remembrances, but they are something more than that. They are, when received, when participated in with a sincere faith, they're a taste of your salvation. Famous reformer, named John Calvin, put it this way, just as the twig draws substance and nourishment from the root to which it is grafted, so those who receive baptism with right faith truly feel the effective working of Christ's death in the mortification of their flesh, together with the working of his resurrection in the vivification of the Spirit. So if you are a Christian and you've never been baptized, what I would say to you this morning is be baptized. Don't rob yourself of this tangible gift it is from God to experience your union with Christ in a way that nothing else will allow you. And if you have been baptized, then don't miss the participation it is in your union with Christ each and every week when you come to this table. You are in Christ. His death is your death, his burial, your burial, his resurrection, your resurrection. And when we come to this table, we receive that and we are also received into that. And we get to taste tangibly the truth of what Jesus has done for us, our union with Christ, that we are united with him. Now, through our union with Christ, this is the point of this whole first part of the the time together today. New life is our position. It's our position. And here's why that matters. Because real Heart-level transformation always moves from the indicative to the imperative. Or put it more plainly, real-life transformation always starts with what is true, and out of what is true moves into what to do. So we don't, as Christians, follow a way of life. We don't obey rules in order to make something true. 
We live this way in response to what is already true. And I hope you heard it as we read it. This entire passage is laid out that way. The first 10 verses here are all indicative. It's all Paul pronouncing and proclaiming what God in Christ has done. Verses 11 through 13 then have a lot of imperatives. Here's now how to live and what to do in light of that. And then verse 14 is this beautiful bookend, another indicative. Here's what's true. You're no longer under the law, but under grace. So the Christian life in practice is always living as a response to what is true. And as we've come to the end of Lent, if you tried during Lent to focus on your sin and to be repenting of that sin, then you know this just as well as I do, just as well as anyone does. If you try to simply rid yourself of sin by being disciplined or by working harder or by trying some new technique or by promising yet again never to do that thing again, you will be, and maybe you're there right now, weary, exhausted, and as enslaved as you've ever been. Instead, we are to know and to believe that through Jesus' work, new life is already ours. And as Paul says in verse 11, to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. The word consider there means count or to reckon. And a scholar named N.T. Wright points out that it's the language of adding up a sum or adding up a column of figures. N.T. Wright says this, when I add up the money in my bank account, that does not create the money. Life is not, alas, that easy. It'd be nice if it was, right? He goes on to say, it merely informs me of the amount of money that is already there. When I have completed the reckoning, I have not brought about a new state of affairs in the real world outside my mind. And then he says this, the only new state of affairs is that my mind is now aware of the way things actually are. My mind is now aware of the way things actually are. Christian, you have died to sin. The tyranny of sin, both its penalty and its power, have been broken in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And because his death is your death, and his resurrection, your resurrection, the tyranny of sin is likewise broken in you. You are dead to sin and alive to God. Reckon that death and resurrection. And you need to know that. You need to believe that. You need to reckon it. When you find yourself in this comatose state, when you find yourself reeking again of death and decay, you need to know, especially in those moments, that worm tongue has neither the authority or the power over you anymore. That sin is not inevitable. That remaining in sin is not inevitable. And think of it this way. To accept that pale shadow of yourself. To resign yourself to thinking, I guess this is just the way it is. And I guess this is just the way that it's always going to be. That is actually to live your life against the grain of God's redemptive work. That pale shadow, that's your old Self. And that old self, Paul is saying, has been crucified in the crucifixion of Jesus. Your new self, the one that is united with Christ, your resurrected self, that is a self that is part of a kingdom of priests to God that will forever reign with the risen one, Jesus Christ. And this new life is your position, it is your station, it is your identity. As N.T. Wright put it, may your mind always be aware of the way things actually are. Second, because new life is our position, 
new life is also our practice. We're dead to sin, we're alive to God. And so the question then becomes, will we step into these new lives? Will we live in accordance with the reality of Jesus' finished work? Will this positional truth become our reality in practice too? Your old self has been crucified. But what Paul says in another letter, the letter of 1 Corinthians, he says he also must die to sin and die to himself every single day. And so each day, we must, as Christians, reckon death and life. We must embrace anew that death of our old self. And we must embrace anew the resurrection of our new self. And we must, each and every day, breathe the free air of the gospel again for today. For this day, for this moment. In addition to reckoning yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, Paul then gives three imperatives, three directives about how to practice new life. Two negatives and one positive. First, he says, don't let sin reign in your body. Recently, my wife and I watched a a series that we found on Netflix. I don't know how popular this series was. Maybe some of you have heard it. Uh, It was put together by AMC, and it was called Turn, Washington Spies. Anybody familiar with this series or maybe seen an episode or some of it? Probably obvious. It's about the American Revolution. It's about a ring of spies that were employed by General George Washington and the Americans against the British during the American Revolutionary War. I don't know about you. Every time that I read something about uh, or watch something about the American Revolution, it makes me want to be part of a revolution. And maybe even deeper than that, it makes me want to revolt against something, against someone. As I was considering that this week, I believe there is something innate, deep in the heart of humanity that desires revolt. And I think if you step back, you'll see this too. Sin is just the warped, corrupted version of this. Sin is what makes God the focal point of, that, of the revolt. But resurrection doesn't eradicate this longing, at least in me, for revolt. It actually redeems it. It redeems it. And where the old self revolts against God, the new self revolts against sin. It sees sin for what it is. It's an unwelcome, occupying, tyrannical Lord that needs to be thrown out. Positionally, new life means that we are no longer subject to sin's tyrannical rule. We no longer have to submit to its oppressive cruelty and the shame that comes with it, and the self-destruction that comes with it. We no longer have to do any of those things. And so Paul says, don't let it rain anymore. As one theologian puts it, and I love how he states this. This is from a couple hundred years ago. He says, revolt in the name of your rightful ruler God against sin's usurping rule. Revolt in the name of your rightful ruler God against sin's usurping rule. Where has sin made you a pale shadow of the person you actually are? Where does sin continue to reign in your mortal body? What form does it take for you? Forms does it take for you if you're like me? Is it anger? Is it pride? Is it lust? What Paul is saying here in this text is don't let it. Don't let it. Don't give that sin quarter 
anymore, revolt against it, allow the same violence of the kingdom of God that laid siege to death and to sin and to Satan and to hell themselves, lay siege to the besetting, recurring sins of your own life. Sin is not inevitable. The reality of the way things are is that sin is now an oppressive intruder, so be rid of it. Throw it out. The second thing that Paul says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. And then third, the flip side of the same coin, do present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Easter and what we celebrate today is radical. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is the hinge event in the history of God's redemption. It has radical implications, and we've sung and heard about many of them this morning. That Jesus will reconcile all things to himself. That Jesus is making all things new. And it has radical implications for our lives. As we've considered it, it's the the reality that establishes this fundamental positional change in us from death to life. But where positionally new life is radical, experientially, New life is fleshed out. New life becomes our practice in thousands of seemingly mundane moments. Our members, as Paul calls them here, those are our capacities, our faculties. So it includes our physical body to be sure, but it's more than that. It's also our our mental faculties. It's also our heart capacity. And this text reveals that there's no neutral use of these things. That in every single moment of every day, in thousands of specific ways, our words, our thoughts, our actions, our decisions, we are enlisting ourselves in this war between life and death. We are enlisting ourselves, our capacities, our faculties, as instruments to sin for unrighteousness or to God for righteousness. And I say all that to say this. If you are someone who is not a Christian, then there is a radical change that is necessary for you. And hopefully you've heard that this morning. Death to life, complete change of everything you've ever known about the reality of the world. It will be radical. But if you are already a Christian, then hear me on this. You need not walk away from this Easter Sunday with a pledge to live some kind of new grandiose life. At least not in the way that we're often prone to think about new and grandiose lives. Instead, practice the new life that is already yours in the mundane of every day. So instead of speaking ill of another person, instead of gossiping or slandering, use your voice, use your words to be one who encourages, to be one who affirms, because this is new life. Instead of exploiting or objectifying or manipulating other people to achieve whatever agenda you have for them and for yourself, learn to behold others as the image bearers of God that they truly are, because that's new life. Instead of using up the the very limited and precious mental capacity that you have with worry, with anxiety about things that you have no control over, offer that precious limited mental capacity you do have to prayer, to communing with the God who made you for himself, rejoicing in his grace and how he's displaying that to you, pleading with him to work powerfully where you're not seeing it right now. This is new life. When your days or your weeks, or your months, or your years, 
or your entire life goes differently than you planned it. Instead of getting impatient, and instead of attempting to forcefully reassert your agenda back into all of those things, receive your circumstances as from the hand of God himself, because this is new life. Instead of, when you get home from a long day of work, instead of rushing inside your house and shutting the door, look for your neighbors outside. Initiate relationship, initiate conversation with them. Live presently in the place where God has placed you. Not privately, not passively, because this is new life. Instead of checking out, instead of attempting to escape after long weeks of work and long weeks of toil, practice Sabbath. Do things that bring rest and do things that bring rejuvenation, but instead of this absent-minded escapism, fix your heart and fix your mind on the mercies of God. Enjoy the gifts of God. You do not need the resurrection of Jesus to be absent-minded and to escape. But you do need the resurrection of Jesus to practice Sabbath. This is new life. Instead of abdicating the role and responsibility you have as a man or woman of God in the world, own that. Show up for that. Trade entertainment and trade diversion And trade luxury in order to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. The resurrection makes that possible. This is new life. And then, instead of burning yourself out, as though you are the savior of the world instead of Jesus, rest. Rest. Entrust yourself. Entrust others. Entrust these weighty and soul-crushing problems that exist in your own life and in the world around you to the one who has died and risen again. This is new life. And the point is this. Your mundane really isn't mundane. It's a collection of thousands of small opportunities to step into new resurrection life. The the cosmos-altering resurrection of Jesus Christ enables and empowers and compels a thousand resurrection moments each and every day. Moments where we can, where we're invited, where we should present ourselves to God, present our faculties and capacities to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And the picture of that, being brought from death to life, it's as though we've changed addresses. That's the picture Paul is presenting here. It's like moving to a new country. You used to live in death, but that's not your home anymore. Your new address is life. But today, And every day, for as long as you have another day, you and I commit to learn the language of our new home. We commit to learn the culture and to learn the customs of this new home and to practice them. We apply the positional death in life that is ours in union with Christ to put sin to death and to walk in newness of life. And so I'll close this morning with this. Jesus, as we are celebrating today, Jesus is alive. Are we? Are you? And perhaps you are here this morning and you've never entered into this union with Christ. That will be true for many people who darken the door of churches in our region and to the ends of our earth on this Easter Sunday. In order to have new life, positionally or in practice, each of us must repent of our sin and believe in Jesus. You heard John share earlier as he was leading us through our liturgy, It's not adherence to a moral code. It's not doing more good than bad and the good outweighing the bad. 
our union with Christ, our experience of the salvation that he offers comes only by looking to Jesus' death and resurrection, trusting that to count on your behalf, believing that this he did for you. And so if you've never done that, I would implore you, believe. Believe and live. Believe and enjoy the new life that is offered to all who will come. Many others of you this morning are Christians. You do believe and you do follow this risen Jesus. But perhaps, like Theoden, you feel yourself right now a pale shadow of the man or woman that you actually are. And your life is characterized more by this old self stench of death and decay rather than the resurrected new self, this resurrected humanity, this kingdom of priests that you have been redeemed into. If that's you, may you breathe the free air again. May you breathe the free air of the gospel again for today, for this moment. Sin has no dominion over you. So may the reality of your new life in Jesus become again and become increasingly not merely your position, but your practice, and not merely your doctrine, but truly your experience. Jesus is alive. May we live our lives dead to sin and alive to God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Glory to you, the one risen Son of God, the firstborn from the dead, Jesus. You were dead and you are alive. And our life is hidden in you. We are united with you. Your death is our death. Your burial, our burial. Your resurrection, our resurrection. I pray that we would not only know that as factual truth, but we would believe that, that we would live in light of it, that we would appropriate it for our own life today. And that this radical transfer from death to life would be fleshed out in the seemingly mundane moments of today. I pray for my friends in this room that you would send us from here to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, walking in the newness of life that you have purchased for us. And as we come now to this table, as Paul has even reminded us in this text, may we see at this table not only a remembrance, but truly a participation in our union with you, that we do get to experience all the benefits of your death and resurrection by faith in what you have done for us. Thank you for that great work. Thank you that it counts by faith, through your spirit, on our behalf. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.